Welcome to Urban Principle, leadership lessons brought to you by BrettAndersonConsulting.com. And now here's your host, Brett Anderson. And welcome back to another podcast. We are on episode 153, season three, and this is part two of our conversation from last time on restorative practices in the brain. And if you don't uh, remember, we started with an article from... uh, uh, Edutopia. It was aiming for discipline instead of punishment. Brain-aligned discipline isn't compliance-driven or punitive. It's about supporting students in creating sustainable changes in behavior by Lori uh, DeSaltos. And it was a really good article. Um, gave some ways on how you could do some uh, preventative uh, strategies. And uh, remember we talked about a hurtful child is a hurt-filled child. And trying to change the behavior, the punishment is like trying to pull off the top of only the top part of a weed. If you don't get to to the root, the hurtful behavior pops up elsewhere. Um, and children in fear and a fear response often look aggressive, defiant, and oppositional. And then we were bringing in different restorative practices. And uh, I'd like to share something today from um, Eric Jensen, uh, excellent book, Teaching with Poverty in Mind. Uh, what being poor does to kids' brains and what schools can do about it. And that doesn't mean uh, your schools all have uh, students that are in poverty, but uh, poverty students actually have more of the attributes or the ACEs. Remember we talked about ACEs last time and the eight ACEs. And the initial eight, of course, are substance abuse in the home, parental separation and divorce, mental illness in the home, uh, witnessing domestic violence, suicidal household member, death of a parent or another loved one, parental incarceration, and experience of abuse, which could be psychological, physical, or sexual, or neglect, uh, both emotional or physical. And those were identified in 1998 um, as the initial eight ACEs and uh, those adverse childhood experiences which can affect you into adulthood and also affect you in your ability to learn and uh, Eric Jensen also talks about how uh, the brain can be hampered by different... Uh, the good thing in his books and his information and research is he talks a lot about how uh, that can be turned around and how you can actually change that in the brain. Uh, let me read just some pieces from this because I think this is important from Eric Jensen. Exposure to chronic or acute stress is debil- debilitating. The most common adaptive behaviors include increased anxiety as manifested in generalized anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder and an increased sense of detachment and helplessness. Students from low-income families who experience disruptive or traumatic events or who lack a measure of connectedness to family, to the community, or to a religious affiliation demonstrate increased hopelessness over time. Uh, and that was taken from research by Ball and Lyon and then uh, Formicella in 2005. And he says nearly half, 47% of low uh, socioeconomic status African-American adolescents reportedly clinically are reported clinically significant levels of depressive symptoms. And this was in 2004. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what that is now after we've had the pandemic And everybody's been influenced by the pandemic, and you may have known people that have passed away, and you may have students who have parents that have passed away, and there are more chances that they're going to have some of these ACEs or some of the um, stats of a trauma uh, student 
with just all these uh, things that have happened to us in the last few years as well. Uh, and they're talking about uh, low socioeconomic students are more likely to give up or become passive and uninterested in school. And that was Johnson, 1981. This giving up process is known as learned helplessness. It's not genetic. It's adapt. It's an adaptive response to life conditions. And sadly, it frequently takes hold as early as first grade. Uh, many kids with learned helplessness become fatalistic about their lives and are more likely to drop out of school or become pregnant while in their teens. Uh, this was why at the, one of the schools I was at as principal for 10 years as a, well, as a high poverty building, uh, we actually did a lot with uh, college awareness and developing hope and developing things to get them out of that poverty cycle and to get students uh, thinking about futures and getting out of that feeling of helplessness. And we also heard... Uh, they talked about connectedness. We did talked about that quite a bit last time in connecting students to school. Uh, let me read on a little bit more. Children who have had greater exposure to abuse, neglect, danger, loss, or other poverty-related experiences are more reactive to stressors. Each stressor builds it on and ex exacerbates other stressors and slowly changes the student. It is the cumulative effect of all the stressors that often makes life miserable for poor students. When researchers provided classes and appropriate coping skills and stress-relieving techniques, subjects demonstrated a decrease in hostility, uh, let's see, or depressive symptoms. Unfortunately, these interventions, along with stress-relieving recreational activities, are largely unavailable to those living in poverty. For example, neighborhood parks and recreational facilities tend to be scar scarcer in hazardous areas or in disrepair. Uh, very much so. Uh, poor children are half as likely as well-off children to be taken care uh, or taken to a museum's theaters or the library and they are less likely to go on vacations or other fun of our culturally enriching outings and that was bradley and corwin by in 2002 and that is true as well because those uh exposures to uh, learning experiences keep that learning going through those summer months when uh students in poverty and students in lower income can be more stagnant and less learning can be taking place. So Eric Jensen, what are the action steps he says? Uh, do they fit with our restorative practices? I think they do because he says, uh, first recognize the signs. Behavior that comes off as apathetic or rude may actually indicate feelings of hopelessness or despair. It is crucial for teachers to recognize the signs of chronic stress in students and students who are at the risk for a stress-related disorder tend to believe that they have minimal control over their stressors I uh, have no idea how long the stressors will last or how intense they will be. So we need to come up with some things to help them with that for sure. Have few outlets through which they can release the frustration caused by the stressors. Uh, interpret stressors as evidence of circumstances worsening or becoming more hopeless. hopeless. Lack social support for the distress caused by the stressors. So uh, th th he goes on to talk about the importance of sharing with other staff members why it's important to avoid criticizing student impulsivity and the me-first behaviors whenever you and your colleagues witness a behavior you consider inappropriate. Ask yourselves whether the discipline process are positive, is positive and therefore increases the chances for better future behavior or whether it's punitive and therefore reduces the chances for better future behavior. Uh, basically, you need to get back into that reteaching mode and in restorative practices, we talk about a lot about, a lot about giving choices and how are you going to reteach that behavior 
in a productive way so that they can uh, emulate it in the future. Uh, one thing Eric Jensen says is to alter the environment, change the school environment to mitigate stress and resolve potential compliance issues with students who do not want to change. Uh, re reduce the parallels with prison. What he's talking about there is uh, eliminating bells and, and things like that and making uh, songs for class transitions and music playing for tra class transitions. And uh, middle schools and high schools do that a lot because they have uh, bells constantly uh, initiating periods and ending periods. So, so they have those throughout the day. And I think that's something that is incorporated into a lot of different schools. Uh, another thing he says is using cooperative structures, avoid a top-down authoritarian approach. Got tongue-tied there. And help students blow off steam by incorporating celebrations, role plays, and physical activities, walks, relays, games, uh, brain gems, uh, all the things that um, go noodle, all the good things that you can do that are still interactive and fun to give your kids some brain breaks and to give them some physical breaks and chances to move a little bit. Uh, incorporate kin kinesthetic arts, uh, drama, charades, etc. Creative projects, drawing or playing instruments, hands-on activities, building or fixing into your classes, uh, empowering your students more. One thing we did a lot as a, uh, is having a group work and kids working in teams and all those are work really well as long as you teach what that behavior looks like and how they do work in those teams you have to teach those procedures and routines extremely well so they know what they're doing but he talks about empowering students help students increase their perception of control over the environment by showing them how to better manage their own stress levels instead of telling students to act differently take the time to teach them how to act differently by introducing conflict resolution skills now in restorative practices and the training I do with restorative practices um, you're coming up with a problem-solving model that you'll use as a school and you're teaching those problem-solving skills so that by the time uh, they've gone through your school starting in the kindergarten level or at the pre pre-k level you're teaching some problem-solving skills that everybody will be a part of and learn and by the time they're in the upper grades this becomes a just a model that they can consistently use to problem solve and often they get into problem solving on their own than when they do this and the goal is of course getting them to understand what it means to be a victim and having empathy for others and understanding what their actions do and their that their actions do have consequences but their actions also affect other people and how they affect other people and those are important pieces of restorative practices and that fits in with what Eric Jensen is saying here as well uh, teaching students how to deal with anger and frustration, that's another one. Uh, he says counting to 10, taking slow, deep breaths. I believe in the breathing. We've talked about that before on the show. Uh, teaching students to breathe and slow down that uh, nervous system and that metabolism and getting them to understand when they get angry, there are things you can actually do uh, to combat that anger and to help control uh, those emotions. And we talked about having uh, spaces that you can go to and places in your room so that they can have a break from people and kind of get it back together. And we've talked a lot about that kind of stuff on this show as well. Uh, teaching students to set goals and focus on what they want is another good uh, strategy. Uh, role modeling, how to solve real-world problems, um, such as your car running out of gas, as an example they give. So, I mean, you could use illustrations that work with kids making connections. I I think are extremely important too 
and then also teaching them uh, something else I've talked about with restorative practices is teaching them to change that channel teaching students how to slow down and to get off of whatever it is they're upset about and that takes time you need uh, to let them have their break you need to get to a point where you can actually problem solve but helping them change that channel and that's a, a good analogy for students too of changing the channel and getting it uh, getting into a new state of mind uh, another thing was uh, uh, giving students a weekly life problem to solve collectively uh, that would work really well with the restorative practices groups too or you could share out a problem into uh, restorative circles and you could let uh, people chime in on how they could solve the problems or how they could come up with solutions and it would build on itself as a, a group uh, topic that would actually be a good one for a, a restorative circle uh, teaching social skills for example before each social interaction pair share or buddy teaching ask students to make eye contact shake hands and give a greeting at the end of each interaction have students thank their partners uh, I've seen a lot more of this in classrooms now uh, with teachers of getting their students into just uh, teaching social skills and manners and those are things with students in poverty they don't come with those skills so you have to teach those skills so teaching some of those social skills and those social cues that they need to survive in school are important for them uh, to just survive through the school day in a school middle class so-called school setting uh, introducing stress reduction techniques which we've talked about before both physical dance and yoga mental uh, could be relaxation meditation could be breathing techniques all of those all those are things that kind of kind of help your your students to slow down and start getting them to think about how their brain is actually working and how their brain interacts with uh, with their anger and how they can slow it down and how they can uh, create a more calm state which is going to help them in the long run be successful uh, and then sharing something from hacking school discipline uh, many students misbehave because they don't feel successful academically if we can build their confidence the behavior will often take care of itself and a lot of students don't feel uh, secure in their ability to actually uh, complete schoolwork and to succeed in schoolwork so giving them those small successes and that was one thing Eric Jensen talked about too is uh, those small celebrations and showing them that they can actually do some of these things reframing things so that they understand them uh, can help a lot in teaching learning structures so that students know how to solve the problems and can use other tools in uh, solving those problems can go a long way as well and there are so many many restorative practices I know we've done more than one show on restorative practices and I was trying to make some connections with some of the brain and some of your thought processes and uh, wanted to help a little bit with some of that and I think that uh, we could go on and on I don't want the show to get too long but I want to go ahead and as I wrap up I want to give some quick uh, things that I would give at the end of a uh, our trauma-informed teaching and working with students with ACEs because I think it fits with restorative practices and uh, things to just kind of keep in mind that every uh, these are things that I give as takeaways in my some of my training is that every has every student has experienced trauma and not even every student every adult has as well uh, and children experiencing trauma react and trauma is toxic uh, we need to take care of ourselves and we need to, need to teach our students how to take care of themselves as well and understanding our students and the demographics or their in the demographics of your community uh, modeling healing behaviors for students is important 
and teach and modeling breathing. Those breathing techniques can help students to uh, calm down for sure. Uh, be specific about relationship building and help guide students in building relationships. That's why the check-in and the check-out systems work so well because you're building a relationship with those students and you're checking in with them and getting them on the right track and you're checking out with them and kind of finishing the day. And if this has happened, that's okay. That's a mistake. Then we have tomorrow as a fresh start and you can go through some things to debrief and kind of get them ready for the next day coming up. Uh, good, good thing with relationship building. Uh, pr promote predictability and consistency. Teach them to change the channel. I love that one because I think it's uh, so effective. Uh, give supportive feedback. Create islands of competence and recognize their strengths. Limit exclusionary practices, and that's what restorative practices tend to do, and lower the number of times you actually have to uh, send a student actually out of the building or on suspension. Uh, clear expectations and procedures. Um, you can't underestimate the, the power of procedures and routines and the way students learn them and how that can change an environment or a school. Uh, creating a safe building and grounds. The students need to feel safe. And those check-in, check-out systems uh, build a sense of belonging, building relationships, and building strong classroom communities and a strong school community. And that's overall what restorative practices uh, try to do is to build that strong supportive community and I know we hit on a lot of different things and kind of jumped around a little bit uh, I have uh, previous podcasts on restorative practices and other things that you can hit some other areas if you'd like and I'm sure we'll be continuing to talk about this in the future because behavior is one of our big topics uh, many times and restorative practices so as we wrap up today let me finish with a quote our quote is Culture is how employees' hearts and stomachs feel about Monday morning on a Sunday night. And that was by uh, Bill Marklein. So think of that. So keeping your culture positive uh, will help people want to come to work, will help them want to work with your students, and will help them want to be a part of your building and your culture. So as always, keep promoting effective leadership through productive culture changes. And until next time, Let's remember to stay positive. You've been listening to Urban Principle. Leadership lessons brought to you by BrettAndersonConsulting.com.